As we begin this morning, I would like for you to imagine with me that at one point, let's say last week, you were staying in a hotel on vacation. You're in one of these high-rise things down by the beach. You're on that 10th floor. Your room faces the beach, but there's no balcony. And you're there, and you're there with your family, and it's nighttime. Now you go to bed, and suddenly in the middle of the night, a piercing alarm awakens you and all of your family. You're aroused from your sleep. You're kind of in that daze. What, 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 what's going on? And you notice immediately that your room is filled with smoke. And there's obviously a fire. But you go to the door of your hotel room. And as you touch the handle, it's hot. You open it anyway, and there's flames everywhere in the hallway. There is no escape. There is no way out. You are trapped in your hotel room. You get your family down the floor trying to avoid some of the smoke so that you may be able to breathe. And suddenly, there's a crash at that window facing the beach. It's a fireman on a long extension ladder And he's at your window. He comes in with oxygen. And another one comes in and they protect you and your family from the flames and from the smoke. And they hasten to get you out of that room. And to escape the fire and to escape the danger. You and your family are saved. Saved from sure death by this fireman and this fire department. Now my question is today, what would your reaction be towards that fireman? What would your reaction be towards that fire department who risked their lives to save you and your family from sure death? I would imagine that most people would be extremely grateful. Extreme gratitude would be the order of the day as you and your family were saved, rescued from sure death. Might there even be a visible outpouring of gratitude? I think so. So what do you believe the response would be? Or what do you believe the response ought to be to eternal God? Eternal God, who not only delivers men, including us, many of us, from temporal danger, fire, caring for you in sickness, all the things that God does temporally for you. But not only does He deliver you from temporal danger, 
But in many cases, He has rescued you from eternal death in hell. What would the response of someone who has genuinely been saved from eternal death by God, what ought it to be? There ought to be evidence in the lives of someone who has been saved by God. And one of those evidences would certainly be appreciation and love. This is where we are going in our continued look at the series that we have called The Fundamentals of Forgiveness. Now, it's one thing for me to suggest that someone ought to show an evidence of response to God, an evidence of being saved, but it's another thing for us to see it in the Scriptures. I can suggest it all I want, but we ought to see it in the Scriptures, and that's what we are going to do. As we continue on, I say, having seen the essence of forgiveness from the Scriptures, we spent many weeks seeing that we are all sinners. And it is sinners who need forgiveness. And Christ came not telling men and women that they need to be healthy, that they need to be wealthy. But He came and He said to men who were indeed in crisis, that paralyzed man that was lowered down into the room, He didn't say, you need to be well, you need to be healthy. He said, your sins are forgiven. As he said to that known sinner and that sinner caught in the very act, your sins are forgiven. Jesus never told anybody, try harder. Just be a better man. He said, you must be born again. These are the words of our Savior. We see in the Scriptures that we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins, alienated from God and without hope. We must be forgiven. That's the essence of forgiveness that we spent many weeks dealing with. And thank God, we then saw from the Scriptures the existence of forgiveness as God again and again says in the Scriptures that He is a God who is willing and eager to save, willing and eager to forgive. We saw that and called it the alacrity of God to forgive sins. He is willing to forgive. And then we saw from the Scriptures also Christ's authority to forgive. What gives him the right to say your sins are forgiven you? He has the right because he is the promised Messiah, God incarnate, eternal God. And since sin is against God, he as God has every right to forgive sins. And so we saw that he has the authority to forgive sins. Sins. That is how he could say to men and women, your sins are forgiven you. And then last week we concluded our look at Christ's activity to forgive sins. 
And we saw from the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 26 as Jesus was celebrating the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper that he said that he would shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. His activity was the work on the cross. He died as a sacrifice to God to forgive sins. And then last week, we saw from that chapter in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, that He has shed His blood for our redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And we saw that redemption means that He paid the price to set us free from slavery to sin, bondage to sin. The condemnation of God's judgment upon our sin is paid for and we are freed from it because of the activity of Christ giving His life on the cross. This is our Savior and we are so thankful that He has paid the price of our sin debt. Now today, we turn to look at this next area the evidence of forgiveness. And we're going to begin to see that it is only proper, and not just proper, but biblical, that men who are genuinely saved display evidence of that. How, in contrast to the easy-believism gospel of our day, in contrast to the heretical, carnal Christian teaching that someone can be saved and still live like they always did, with no change in their lives whatsoever, with no evidence of forgiveness. That is heresy. That is untrue. And the Bible teaches us that those who are indeed forgiven will show it. There will be evidence in the lives of every man and every woman who has been saved by God. Even as that fireman who saved that family and you would normally show gratitude, so too, when someone is truly saved by God, there will indeed be evidence. I cannot understand how anyone could be indifferent when they recognize and realize what God has done for them. It is impossible. When you understand all that God has done in sending His Son, in pouring out His wrath upon His Son in your place, in His Son offering Himself as a sacrifice for your sins, how could you be indifferent to that? It is impossible. And I believe, again, that the Scripture will bear this out. And so I'm going to ask you at this time that we see the first evidence of forgiveness, and that would be heartfelt appreciation or love to God for all that He has done. I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. This is a text which has been central to our study on forgiveness on several occasions, as Jesus deals with what we called a known sinner. Verse 36, and I'm going to read much of this account, 
and refer to some of it as we go. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. This is a great account, and we've looked at it in several ways already, and today we are going to approach it in another way. I want you to see first from this account of this known sinner who shows her appreciation to Jesus. First, I want for us to see a display of omniscience from the sovereign God. Did you notice that as soon as the woman came in, she began to display the fruits of forgiveness? She didn't come in and ask Jesus to be forgiven. She didn't come to Jesus begging him that he would heal her, save her, or do anything like that. She simply came in and began to display 
the fruits of one who has been forgiven. Now, I know I want to mention this again, particularly for you kids, that you would remember that in those days they would not sit at the tables like we do, but they might be more like this, and the table might actually be sort of like this height. And so they would sit there like this, and so she would have been at his feet, wiping his feet with her tears, anointing his feet with the perfume, kissing his feet. These are acts of worship. These are acts of adoration. And she did them immediately. Now, why would that be? Let me just put this to you. As I said, we'll look first at the omniscience of sovereign God, who is Jesus. Do you think she was there by accident? Do you think that uh, maybe she just sort of happened to be in the neighborhood? Or is this the act of the sovereignty of God in bringing to pass a lesson for you and for me to see exactly what God does in the hearts and lives of men and women. She was there for us to see what God does in the hearts of men and women and how their hearts and lives are changed from being a known sinner to a God worshiper. A God lover. Let me say to you first, her actions here are not the cause of her forgiveness. There is no way that you can earn your salvation. So she was not saved. And and when you get down to the the verse that we see in verse uh, 48, when he says your sins have been forgiven, he doesn't say that because she's down there worshiping him and adoring him. She's not earning salvation by doing that. That's not the object here of this lesson. You cannot earn your salvation. No one can earn God's mercy. We have recently been visited by His holiness. And I say that indeed mockingly. For there is an entire denomination, yes, the largest so-called Christian denomination in the world, who believes that you earn salvation through your works. We talked about this recently in a Sunday school, Pelagianism. Salvation by works. And this is what that man falsely teaches and what that denomination falsely believes. You cannot earn salvation by your works. So this is not what is taking place here. Men will not go to heaven for their good works, nor will they go to heaven for their sincerity, even if they look very sincere and very religious. That guy was the epitome of both. Very sincere, very religious, and very lost. The blind guide leading the blind. Yet he looks so good. He looks so religious. He looks so holy. He smells good. 
He acts good. He must go to heaven. No. Good works and even the most sincere, if they are not saved by the grace of God, do not go to heaven. So she is not here practicing works in order to be forgiven. Rather, we see first that she comes to Christ in what we normally call penitence. She knew who she was. She knew what she had done. And undoubtedly, she was sorry for her sin. And so she came, burdened with her sin, to see Jesus. But let me ask you this. Why does someone do that? Not everyone does that. Why did she do that? Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to that very familiar passage, Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. What causes someone to come to Christ in penitence? God does. Matthew chapter 11. Listen to what Jesus says. Verse 28. You know this text. He says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Weary and heavy laden with what? This is what we looked at, remember, in our first lessons on the essence of forgiveness. That burden of sin, that uh, bunion pictured in Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian had that huge burden on his back, that ugly, stinky burden of sin. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are burdened, heavy laden, weary by your sin. I will give you rest. Remember we said that that's synonymous with being forgiven. Having that burden removed. Remember we saw even last week, redemption, being freed from the bondage of sin. By the work of Christ. And so the burden is removed. He gives rest. But who will do that? Who will come to him for that release? Look back a few verses. Verse 25. At that time Jesus said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. Another way of putting that is not the righteous, but sinners. Hidden them from the wise and the intelligent, the wise and intelligent Pharisees. That just sort of shows you where we're going in our look at Luke. Hidden them from the wise and the intelligent. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. 
How do you get to the Father? Through the Son. And how does that happen? Only as the Son wills. Who will then come to Him to be released from their bondage and their burden of sin? Those whom the Son, first of all, reveals to them that they are sinners. You know, most people don't think of themselves that way. Most people don't care. They just go through life doing what they've always done, and they don't think twice about the fact that they're sinners. How many people this very day, as we sit on this busy road, are traveling westward, heading to the Gulf of Mexico to go out on their boat fishing or whatever? Or how many are heading to Walmart or to the mall? How many are heading to a football party, a tailgate party to watch a foot? And they don't even think of the fact that it's the Lord's day and they should be worshiping God. It doesn't even cross their minds. They don't care. They don't even, it doesn't dawn on them. And how many people will attend churches today where the word of God isn't even opened up? Where they don't even hear or are never told that they're sinners in need of salvation and forgiveness of God. They don't even hear it. And it never occurs to them that there's more to Christianity than a show. There's more to Christianity than entertainment. It never even crosses their mind. So who is it that will come to the realization that I am lost? That without God I am doomed. God deliver me from this bondage of sin and death. Who's going to do that? Those whom the Son reveals it. Those to whom the Son comes with the Word of God and the Spirit of God and pierces their hearts with the truth of God that I am a sinner, I am lost, and I must be saved or I will be doomed to hell. Look at John's Gospel in chapter 6 very briefly. As Jesus pointedly says this to His hearers, John chapter 6 We look at verse 44 and we hear the words of our Lord Jesus as he has already been speaking about the fact that there will be those who come to him. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me that all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. They will be forgiven and raised up on the last day. But who will do that? Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up. On the last day. Likewise, he says across the page in verse 65, and he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him 
from the Father. Why did this woman come to Jesus at this Pharisee's house? Because the sovereign God drew her. The sovereign God of heaven and earth ordered all things. The Spirit pierced her heart to let her know she was a sinner who needed forgiveness. And here's Jesus in town. So she did just what Jesus told men to do in Matthew chapter 11. She came unto him. Come unto me, all you who feel the burden of your sin. And she did just that. Drawn by the Spirit, the sovereignty of God, but the responsibility of man. She went to the Savior. Undoubtedly, she had known who he was. She had either heard him preach before, heard about him, heard about those he had healed. But this is where I need to go for forgiveness. Don't miss that. There's no place else to go for forgiveness. It is not in the Koran. It is not in the Bhagavad Gita. There is no place else to go for forgiveness but to the Holy Creator God and to His Son, Jesus Christ. And so she came. It is God and God alone who can raise dead men to new life. He's the only place to go for forgiveness. So here in Luke chapter 7 again, here's what's happening. As sovereign God, Jesus is speaking to her. And why is it that she is already bringing the fruits of one who has been forgiven? Because the moment she came into the presence of the living God, she knew she was forgiven. The moment you come into the presence of the living God in penitence, you are forgiven as you cry out to Him for mercy. And so, immediately, she began to display the fruits of forgiveness, the evidence of forgiveness. And Jesus here doesn't just wait till verse 47 to tell her that she's forgiven, or verse 48 to tell her that she's forgiven. The whole language of what Jesus is saying to her as sovereign God is, she's forgiven already. She's forgiven The language suggests that he's speaking to her as being forgiven. Look at verse 40. Jesus begins to speak to Simon, the Pharisee. I have something to say to you. And he replied. So he goes on to teach him regarding this one who, these two debtors, one who owes 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they're both unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love more? And he says, I suppose the one who who was forgiven more. And, And yes, you've judged rightly. But then he turns to the woman and begins to teach the lesson. She's already forgiven. She's already forgiven. This is what the language suggests. She shows the gratitude which will come from one who has been forgiven much. One who has been forgiven much. Because she was obviously doing what? 
loving much. Loving much. Because she had been forgiven much. You see, she was, as she was at his feet, kissing his feet, anointing his feet, wiping his feet with her tears. She was the illustration, the the vivid reminder right there of what it means to love much. So Jesus is telling this account. The one who loved much because she was loving much as one who had been forgiven much. This is what was taking place. So he says to her, In verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Where does faith come from? We're still talking about the omniscient, sovereign God. Your faith has saved you. Where does faith come from? Please turn to Ephesians again. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We recently looked at this text. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. That's verse 1. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. This describes that woman at Jesus' feet before the day she walked in. This is her, a known sinner. The community knew who she was. Simon knew who she was. Simon thought Jesus can't be a prophet. He doesn't know who she is. Not only did he know who she was, he knew what Simon was thinking. That's how much true God he was. But this describes the state of that woman prior to her coming to Christ. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which, which he loved, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, salvation is by God, by God's grace. You cannot earn it. It is by grace. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So Jesus turns to this woman and says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Where did that faith come from? Sovereign God. Sovereign God. And who knew it? The sovereign God whose feet she was kissing. Faith is a gift of God. 
And then, of course, immediately following that gift of God, we have that faith that he has given, and we respond accordingly. That's what he even says right here. Paul even says in this text that verse 7, in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his kindness toward us. And so we're saved by faith, not by works, that no one should boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not to work to be saved, but saved to do good works. Of which number one might be loving and appreciating the Savior who saved us. That's what that woman in Luke chapter 7 was doing. I ask you to turn back there again. Because now I want to move on from seeing the sovereign God, the omniscience of the sovereign God, knowing her heart already forgiven. And I want to see the contrast between Simon and this known sinner. Jesus points to three areas that Simon neglected and then takes those three areas and turns them around to show him his own lack of reaction to the sovereign Savior Jesus who is there in his home. The contrast here in these three areas, we find, first of all, in verse 44, turning towards the woman, he said, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Do you remember that we talked about this a few weeks ago? About the fact that when you are cleansed by Christ, when you are washed clean by Christ, you don't need to be saved all over again. It's that picture in John 13 of him washing the disciples' feet, and he comes to Peter, and Peter says, No way! You can't wash my feet! I won't let you! And Jesus says, You must have me wash your feet. It is appropriate that I do so. And he goes, Okay, then wash all of me. And he said that once you're cleansed, you don't need to be all washed again, but your feet are to be washed. It was a common thing for people to have their feet washed, usually by a servant, when they entered the home of someone. Because when you took a bath at wherever you went to take a bath, you don't need to be cleansed again, but every road in Jerusalem was a dusty road. They didn't have asphalt yet. Might have had some bricks here and there. But even then, they were dusty. So what would happen is you're wearing sandals and walking through the streets. Your feet would become dusty. So when you came to a house, they needed to be cleansed. They needed to be washed. And that was the common custom. That's what would be done for one who came to your house to show love, a gesture of love, a gesture of of courtesy to wash the feet of those who come. Simon didn't do it. The woman did. With her tears, she washed his feet with her tears. 
The next thing, verse 45, you gave me no kiss. Once again, this was a gesture of friendship given commonly to a friend who would come to your house and often even a guest. You find this often in the Old Testament that when they would come as even Moses on his way back to Egypt to deliver met Aaron and they kissed. It is what friends, brothers, loved ones would do. And when you entered the home, you were to give a kiss of friendship. Simon didn't give that kiss of friendship. But the woman, she continued to kiss his feet. It was a gesture of love. A common gesture of love. When Simon gave no greeting, she greeted Jesus as a long friend and kissed his feet. And then the third thing that he brings to Simon from verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Once again, a common custom to a visitor. So Simon disrespected Jesus, but she loved Jesus. He disrespected Jesus in these ways. Now, why would he do that? Why was there no love for Jesus by Simon? Because Simon was already in his own mind a righteous man. He didn't need forgiveness. He was a righteous Pharisee. And Jesus meant nothing to him other than perhaps to mock. Maybe to find out, to pick his brain, to find something that he might be able to accuse him of. But he, in his own mind, was already righteous and had no need of forgiveness. He considered the woman to be an unworthy sinner. But Jesus showed Simon that by his actions, he was the one who was unworthy. Because what does Jesus say? I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. So, our Lord here is saying quite plainly that Simon was indeed lost. His own self-righteousness closed his heart from thinking he even need to be forgiven, let alone responding with a heart that had been forgiven to the Savior that forgives. There was no act of love. There was no act of appreciation. If he had known Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, he would have had the same reaction as the woman. Instead, he had the opposite reaction, showing his heart, his self-righteous heart. I warn you today in closing, I can't even continue or finish, but I warn you today in closing, that self-righteousness is a sin that keeps men and women from understanding their need of a Savior. 
I don't need to be forgiven. I'm a good guy. I don't need to be forgiven. I'm already good. The fact of the matter is, until you see your sin and you sense that burden of your sin, you will never think that you need to be forgiven. Do you understand why it is so contrary to the Bible that churches today consciously exclude telling people that they're sinners? Consciously exclude calling on people to repent, to turn from their sin. You don't want to tell people that they're, that they're sinners. That might offend them. They, they won't want to come back. How will we make our budget? If we drive everybody out of the church by telling them that they're sinners. So we don't want to do that. We want to tell them that they're just, you know, just need to be a little better and go out and do good. And, and, and God will give you a good parking space at Publix. These are heresies. These are ridiculous notions that pass for preaching for many in our day. God have mercy on those men. We need to tell our flock that men are born at enmity against God, alienated from God, sinners that need to be forgiven, and Christ is the only one that can forgive their sins. We need to do all we can to dispel this self-righteousness that plagues so many. You know, it's not even these big uh, mega churches that have this problem. I mean, I've pastored uh, churches uh, on several occasions and uh, much larger than this and filled with people who thought they were self-righteous. I don't need this gospel stuff. Just tell us some stories. Encourage us. That's what we need. Notice I'm not there anymore. That's what happens in Baptist churches. They kick you out. It's the only church discipline Baptist churches ever practice. The only one they ever vote out is the preacher. You don't give us this sin stuff. Don't tell us we're lost. Encourage us. Be nice. One woman said to me repeatedly in one pastorate, Where's the love? Where's the love? Here's the love. If you're not saved from your sins, you'll perish in hell for all eternity. And I'm loving you enough to tell you. So that by the grace of God, you may experience His mercy in your life. We will pick up here and finish this look at this passage next Lord's Day. But I encourage you today, come to Jesus and come to Him even as He calls and be saved from that burden, that bondage of sin by the work of Christ on the cross. Come to Him today. Let's pray.